All right, well, how's everybody doing? Good. Uh, once again, I'm happy to see everybody here, my family and my fiance's family and some very good friends of mine are here with us today. So, uh, yeah, it's great to see them. I'm glad that they're... Yeah, you can applaud for that. It's great. Uh, we're getting married next Saturday. And uh, in case you need it further after... They're right for each other. She's wearing denim on denim with a plaid shirt. And so, <laughs> match made in heaven. All right, so uh, we've been going through, don't kill me later, please. Okay. Um, we've been going through the book of Hebrews for the past few weeks, and we're going to continue, well, y'all will continue to go through that. Uh, but today we are reading from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 28. Uh, in your pew bulletin, pew, uh, pew Bible, it's on page 1004, but we'll also have it on the screen as well. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, the former priests were many in number because they are prevented by death from continuing in office, but, he hold, but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy and blameless, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. He did this once and for all when he offered up himself. Indeed, the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Again, God's word for God's people. Thanks be to God. All right, y'all. So I started coming to Atlanta Christian Church nine years ago. It was the summer of 2012. Um, and in that time, uh, when I started here, I was working on my Master's of Divinity in Asbury Theological Seminary, uh, going through potentially going through the ordination process in the United Methodist Church. Now, to make a very, very, very long and boring story very, very short, I didn't do that. Uh, so I ended up staying with Atlanta Christian Church. At the time, it was Christian Church Buckhead. We were located in Buckhead, of all places. Uh, and I ended up getting my ordination through here uh, and continuing to do ministry in various ways. The first thing I did was make artwork for the Uptown Building uh, for the different sermon series that we did. That was kind of my way in. And then pretty much right after that, I began on the teaching team rotation and also joined in the band. And so I've been doing a lot of different things with Atlanta Christian Church since I started. Uh, and for many of you who don't know me, I'm also a pastor's son. So I've been engaged in the life of ministry uh, from the cradle and ostensibly to the grave but not for hopefully a very long time. Um, <clears throat> but uh, so I've been here for nine years. Uh, and then in 2020, I came on staff to be the pastor of community and spiritual formation, which meant small groups and community events and things like that. And then there was a pandemic and that was just perfect timing. So I've been, been still doing that throughout it. Uh, it's been a good, long journey and I've really valued my time here. But one thing in everything that I've done here, whether I've been making art or teaching or preaching or writing a class or writing a Bible study or playing guitar, the one thing that I've attempted to say 
<clears throat> is that Jesus loves you. That wasn't supposed to happen. <clears throat> if you take nothing else from today, and if you remember nothing else about me, <laughs> I want you to remember that. Uh, that Jesus loves you, <clears throat> and that's good news. Um, and so with that in mind, I want to take this opportunity one last time uh, to give you the gospel. Straightforward, no frills, nothing else. If you want more on the book of Hebrews, we have a really great Bible study that I wrote about it, and you can download that in the newsletter, and I think there might be some printouts of it as well. But we've got some stuff on that, but... I just wanted to give you something else today, uh, the gospel, the good news, and tell you that story uh, that I believe is true, a story that I hope to Christ that I live out day by day, <clears throat> although I know that more often than not, I don't, but I'm trying. We're all trying, aren't we? I hope we're all trying. Uh, it begins a long time ago, a very long time ago, God created the world. That seems like a very obvious place to start, uh, and it is, because that's where it begins. Now, you will hear people say that the fact that Christianity or the Bible tells a creation story is not unique, because every religion, every faith has a creation story, and that's true. And it seems like a clever thing to say, but it's really not that clever, because when you look at all the creation stories and you look at the biblical creation stories, because there are more than one, uh, you will find some pretty stark differences. The main one being that all other creation myths and all other faiths have to do with a bunch of gods getting angry at each other, causing a fight, making a bunch of destruction, and then the world is just sort of what's left over after that. It's an accident, it's a byproduct, and it comes out of struggle and strife. What makes the biblical creation narrative so much different is that God, for apparently no other reason than just the love of creation, creates the world. He doesn't create it in conjunction with anybody else. There's not a conflict involved. He just says, I'm going to create something. And so he does. He does it because he loves it. He doesn't do it because there's a conflict or a fight. He does it because he simply wants to. And rather than creating out of struggle or conflict, he simply speaks it into existence, and there it is. Now, there's, <clears throat> there's a motif in the Genesis 1 narrative that seems to follow this idea that God is building a temple. And with his words, when he speaks light into darkness and he breaks the sky from the earth and he uh, sees seeps the waters away from the land. What's happening is he's building a temple. And at the very end of building a temple, what's always done is that there's an image of the God put into it. That's why we have crosses and churches. Uh, and so what God is doing is at the end of it, he puts an image of himself into the temple. And that's humanity. That's us. Now, the point of putting us in the creation was to be good stewards, of, good stewards of what God created and then to be good stewards to one another and to show one another love and kindness and mercy and grace because we are all created in the image of the same God. The problem is we're not very good at it, and we screwed it up pretty quickly. And so what God did was he said, okay, fine, all of humanity can't do this, so I'm going to pick a nation 
I'm going to pick a people to be my people and to show them what it means to be truly human. And so he picks this nation, Israel. And it's interesting, Derek kind of stole my thunder on this a few weeks ago, but the name Israel literally means a people who contend or fight with God. And it's interesting that God picks a people who are willing to fight with him to be his representatives in the world around him, in the world around us. And so rather than trying to do all of humanity at once, what God does is he picks a nation to be his people. And so he gives them a set of commandments. It's a lot that's said about the Ten Commandments. A lot of uh, people roll their eyes at it because it seems like this arbitrary list of do's and don'ts. But you really need to understand that when God gives the Ten Commandments to Israel, he's just saved them from slavery in Egypt. And what he's saying is, I've made you my people. I created you. I set you apart. And now I've rescued you. So you're mine. You belong to me. And since you belong to me, here's a list of things that my people do. This is what it means to be human. This is what I've intended for all of you all along. And so he gives these Ten Commandments. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. The Ten Commandments are God's paradigm for what it means to be in relationship with him and relationship with each other. And that's it. And that's all. It's a battle plan to take over the world with the mercy and the love of God. It's a paradigm for godly community. Turns out Israel is a lot like humanity, and Israel screws it up pretty quickly. And so what God does is he sets apart prophets to speak truth to Israel to help them get back on track. And for better or worse, they do their job. Some of them do it better than others. They typically don't have a lot of very nice things to say uh, because people are pretty awful at getting things on track. And so the prophets do this for a very long time. They try to get Israel on track. Israel keeps walking away, and the world keeps walking away. And so eventually God just says, fine, I'll do this whole thing myself. <clears throat> and then we have Christ. One of my favorite names for the Messiah in the Bible is... God with us. <clears throat> because it means not just that God is in our midst, but that God is for us. That he wants what's best for us. And so in Christ, God comes down to the very bottom of humanity. And I think that's so interesting because if you think of humanity and society as a structure from the bottom to the top, and we have all these societal structures and hierarchies and stratifications that we do, and so for God to get to where he was, he had to bypass everything from the top to the bottom. That means he hit everything on the way down. And that means he hit everything on the way back up. There is nothing and there's nobody who's untouched by God's presence, whether they know it or not. And I love that about this thinking of God coming down. And everyone means everyone, not just one group or another, but everyone. I tend to hear a lot of people talk about God cares most about this group of people. And typically that group of people is the group of people who people you don't like don't like. Does that make sense? We all think God cares the most about the people who we, the, the people who we dislike, dislike the most. So it kind of creates this way of creating enemies out of each other. 
Because, well, these people don't care about them, so that's the people who God cares about the most. The problem with that is that we all fall into that category, and it's a really stupid way to look at it. It is. I'm sorry. It's not just one group or another. It's everyone. The fact that Jesus called a Roman soldier the most faithful person he'd ever met means that Jesus cared for someone who was a political enemy. Somebody who voted, would have voted differently than he was. Somebody who represented a foreign power oppressing his people. And Jesus said, I've never found anybody more faithful than that. He loved tax collectors. That means that people with money and resources also need ministry. Just because someone has a lot of money does not mean that they're in a good place with Christ. And so Christ went to them. Yes, Christ cares about the poor and the marginalized, but he also cares about the people who are not obviously poor and marginalized. He cares for everyone. The fact that Jesus was friends with sinners means that even outcasts and the marginalized are welcome in the presence of God. There's not anybody who's exempt, and there's not anybody who needs it more or less than anybody else because we are all equally fallen and all equally in need of Christ's grace. He didn't separate anything, anyone, anybody who needed him, he cared for. He didn't just care about the people who are neglected by the people who we don't like. He cares about them, but he also cares about those people we don't like. That means he cares about people who voted for Donald Trump and people who voted for Joe Biden. And he cares about people who are vaccinated and not vaccinated. And he cares about people who are Republican and Democrat and who are black and who are white and who are every color under the sun. Everybody. Whether you care about them or not, God does. Okay, I'm done with stepping down off that high horse. It's part of the point of the Good Samaritan story. Jesus tells this story, and we always think of it as, oh, be a Good Samaritan to everybody. It's like, no, really, let's think about what's happening. Jesus is talking to a group of Jews, and he tells a story in which a Samaritan, their enemy, is the hero. And the hero saves one of their people. And so he's forcing the people to think about their enemies as someone who can help them, as someone who can give grace to them. That's a really daring thing to say. That means Jesus didn't seem to be concerned with the idea of enemies, and Jesus was not an enemy to anyone. Now, there are people who are enemies to Jesus, but Jesus himself is an enemy to no one. So, he lived here, God in Christ, lived here, did all the things that we do. He had parents and siblings who he seemed to have disagreements with. He had friends who he was close with and who he got frustrated with and who failed him time and time again. He worked, he relaxed, he celebrated, he grieved, he knew friendship, he knew loneliness. Everything that you and I experience every single day, God experienced through Christ. It's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say throughout the entire book. So go read it. That's what it's about. It's just about Christ being the paradigm of what it means to be godly and to be human at the same time, and showing what Jesus did to demonstrate that to us. And what's interesting is that in this passage, I know I said I wasn't going to talk about this passage, but you know what? There's something interesting in it. Um, Verse 25, he says, Consequently, Jesus is able for all time to save those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives and makes intercession for them. It was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, blameless, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. 
He did this once and for all when he offered up himself. Jesus has been doing this since it started. Jesus has been working in the world and, uh, and, and saving and restoring and rescuing since time began. But he picked a moment in history to enter into the world as a person and show us, again, what it means to truly be human. That's the whole point of everything Jesus did, was to say, I'm God, come down to you so that you can see what it means to be a person in God's image. And if you want to know, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be a friend, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be a father or a son or a mother or a daughter, a brother or a sister, look at Jesus. And the ultimate act of love, Jesus, after having lived his life, sacrifices himself on a cross. To secure our salvation. I thank goodness for coffee, right? In the ultimate act of power, he resurrects from the dead to pave the way for us into heaven. That's not a metaphor, by the way. I can't see anything. Um, I love you. It's not a metaphor. Jesus really raised from the dead. I want you to know that I believe that. He, he was dead, the body was dead, and the body came back to life. Okay? This is, not a, this is not some metaphor. They didn't have the right words for it. They had words for all the other things that people say it could have been. It was something new happened. So that we could be part of heaven. In the ultimate act of grace, God's Holy Spirit endorsed with us even today so that we can be a part of the original mission. And that mission is to be the image of God in the world around us, to point the glory of God out to the world, and direct the people who we encounter up to God. That's it. That's, that's what Christianity is, in a nutshell. It's what it means to be godly. It isn't arbitrary obedience to some dead creed written by a bunch of people 2,000 years ago. That doesn't make any sense. Because nobody, no, nobody would give their lives for that. I mean, no, nobody who we read about in the New Testament got out with it with their skin. None of them. They didn't gain anything. But they were willing to die for it. What, like, if it were not true, nobody would do that. People for 2,000 years wouldn't do that. People today who are dying for it wouldn't do it. It's an active life in which Christ continues to live through us by how we love him and how we serve him and how it inspires us to love and serve one another day after day after day. It's life-changing if you let it change your life. If you're here today and you're not sure about it, all I can tell you is that I wouldn't waste my breath if I wasn't sure myself. Yeah, you can be a good person without Christ. I'm not saying you can't. But I don't just want to be a good person. I want to be the image of God in the world around me. And I want to be my true self. 
I want to be who God intends for me to be. I don't want to just be a good person. When Christ lives in you, you'll be more you than you've ever been. And in that, you'll be better than you could have ever been on your own. So if you're not there with this story, that's fine. But don't stop considering it. Don't stop investigating it. Don't stop looking through it. Because there's something in there. There's something amazing in this little story. And maybe today you want to get there. And if so, we can have a chat after church or you can talk with somebody else here. There are plenty of people you can talk to. But just know I wouldn't waste my time telling you something that I didn't think was true. And I wouldn't be, wouldn't have pursued it my whole life. There are things I, I there, there are hobbies and pursuits I've had throughout my life that I just, I don't do anymore because they're not interesting or they're not that meaningful. This is something I've pursued as long as I can remember. And I wouldn't waste my life on it if I wasn't sure. And if you're already on board, awesome. But don't forget it. Remember that story about God's creation and about God's rescue and about God's salvation and about God's redemption and about God's restoration and about God doing everything he can to come down and bring you back to him. Don't forget it. For the love of God, don't forget it. Let it grow in you and fill your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength so that in everything you do, from the way you think to the way you speak to the way you act, it pours out of you so that God is known by you and through you in the things that you think and the things that you say and the things that you do. Jesus loves you. Jesus is risen. Jesus is alive today, and Jesus wants to walk with you as he's walked with countless others. And that's the good news. And for the past nine years, that is what I've attempted to say. Will you pray with me? All right. Almighty and everlasting God, I thank you for this church, for this congregation, for these people, for the heart that they have for you and the heart that they have for the community around them and the heart they have for one another. I thank you for the past nine years that I've been here and for the opportunities I've had to serve you through this congregation. I thank you for the friends that I've made. I thank you for the things that you have taught me through those people. And I thank you for every opportunity I've had to serve you by being a part of this congregation. And now as we go into the week, I I ask that you continue to bless the people of ACC, that you would continue to show yourself to them and show yourself to the world through them uh, in their ministries, in the ways that they serve, the ways that they gather, the ways that they have community, uh, and ultimately the ways that they speak about you. Be with each of us as we go into this week. Thank you for who you are, for loving us, for coming to us, for living among us, for dying and resurrecting to save us. And give us the strength day by day to live as a people who believe it and live as a people whose lives are changed because of it. We lift all these things to you in Christ's name. Amen. One lone tupelo stood against the iron weed, the golden rod that tamed our need for something other than fear and greed. Meet me at the edge of the world.